0: Behind this unassuming veneer and soft voice is a powerful educator, a mild-mannered Canadian and profoundly affected by the inundation of Hong Kong residents fleeing to Toronto to escape the takeover of China, Roz Weitzman ended up spending 15 years in China honing her educational methodologies that she's going to share with us. You're going to hear about the compromises she had to make because of cultural differences the imprint the country and culture has left on her heart and how she's now proliferating what she's learned in invaluable empowerment courses. Don't miss the way Roz approaches special needs students, the most important multicultural lessons she's brought home, and most important of all, the books she's published of her favorite Chinese dishes. You can hear other fascinating conversations like this at Doodles with Donna. And find activities that also promote positive reinforcement at scaffoldingmagic.com now let's hear why raz moved to a country so diametrically different from her own what she learned there and what you can take away from her experiences raz welcome i'm so looking forward to you telling me about your work well it's it's wonderful i i really... Can you start by telling me where you're from, tell me what your educational background is, and then I want to get into how you began doing the empowerment work. How's that?
1: Okay, wonderful. So I'm from Toronto, Canada. I was born here, and I'm back here. During the last 20 years, I lived in China for 15 years
0: and came back when the pandemic forced me back. That's a whole experience in itself and we have to get into that. So before and after, tell me about that. We definitely do. It's part of who I am today and it's changed
1: who I am today in in a huge way.
0: Okay, so are you a teacher by profession?
1: Yes, I'm a trained teacher. I went to Toronto Teachers College, University of Toronto, and I have a teaching certificate. And I taught with the Toronto District School Board for 20 years. What did you teach? What age students? I taught anything from junior kindergarten up to grade eight. That was my certificate. But there were many times when I taught high school students, but not for full school years. So my, my range is basically there. Okay. So in, when I was hired, I was hired with 500 teachers in a cattle call that we called it a cattle call. There was a huge gymnasium. There was 500 teachers. We were placed.
0: We didn't even interview for jobs. And why was that? Because the, the school system was desperate for teachers? Desperate for teachers at that time. Okay. So you were given a job in a cattle call. You didn't do any personal interviews, which is a blessing in itself, although you would have gotten the job anyway. What is the methodology that you started teaching in? Can I ask you that directly? Because I don't know much about the Canadian system.
1: Sure, okay. sure. In, in those days, we taught in uh, classrooms of uh, 25 to 30 students, in students sitting in rows. And I buddied up with a well, it's it's an interesting story how I got a classroom job. After December, a teacher quit and I was the floating teacher of five that were hired in that school. And so they put me there. But previous to that, I had been helping that teacher to to survive in her classroom. So it wasn't so much about methodology as it was about classroom management skills.
0: Okay, that's a huge issue. That's a huge issue. Because you're going to say that there's no teaching, there's no learning until we are able to establish the norms and consequences in a class, correct? Right, exactly.
1: And my experience just blossomed from there because I was able to get to the students in a way that was uh, helpful to them. After that, three years in that school and kind of
0: tradition. I have a question about your, your methodology in, in the behavioral management. Was it positive reinforcement that what we would label it now as positive reinforcement? Always. Okay.
1: Always positive reinforcement. There were charts on the wall. You got a check every time you did something. And, and for the kids with behavior problems, it worked like magic. Yes, definitely. It's just been part of my personal philosophy. I don't know how how it came about. I never really thought about it too much, except that we were actually taught that. We were taught classroom management in the teacher's college, but
0: somehow I got it. It sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. And it just sort of underlines the difference between Canadians and Americans. I know I'm going to get letters about this, that Canadians are just so much nicer (laughs) Not every teacher, come on. I know, I know, I know. But you do have this reputation that... (laughs) Yes, we do. Okay, so let's keep going, Roz. So you became a teacher. It was more teacher-directed than anything at that point because the students were still in rows looking at you, listening to you, right? Right, right.
1: When I went to school, it was Dick and Jane and, and everybody read the same passage. Right. Okay. Three years later, I left that school because my principal, who was a wonderful man, supportive principal. He left and many of us left at that time. And my mentor who helped me to establish my my skills there, she left also. Okay. So I went to a an inner city school. I didn't know what I was getting
0: myself into. It's the best
1: training but, ground though, isn't it? Honestly, honestly, it was fantastic for me. That was the time when Schools were being rebuilt into pods of two to four teachers in teams. It was called team teaching. And I was lucky, lucky to be on a team with a highly experienced teacher. And that was where I really took off with that theme. Okay, the theme-based teaching, the language experience... And that is the focus of everything that I've ever done in education from then on theme based and language experience.
0: Let me just clarify, if you don't mind, uh, the language based, because in Toronto, do you have bilingual education? Did you have it then and is it now with English, French? Okay, we don't, we have schools that
1: are French immersion. You can choose that. Or you can send your child to a regular school. To a a monolingual school. Right. One language. And French was taught from an early age as one of the classes by a French teacher that came in and taught French.
0: Okay. And this is a French teacher, a Canadian French teacher. I just want to establish this just so that there aren't any questions later. Fantastic. Okay. So you did theme-based learning. And could you explain that, please? Okay, it's it's something that has permeated
1: my entire career from from then on. Because when you talk about a theme, whether it's let's talk about going to the doctor as a theme, that kind of theme, it starts in kindergarten. They do that theme. They talk about the words doctor, stethoscope, a needle, nurse. and all those things. As the students get older, you talk about how to make a reservation, how to talk to the, the secretary, different things like that, that all relate to medicine, uh, science, everything as they get older comes more, becomes more complex language, complex
0: thinking, complex ideas. So what you're saying, I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying that these themes are recycled every year, but they become more sophisticated. And what you do is you include more sophisticated academic language, you bring real issues into the classroom, and it's also cross-curricular. Am I getting it? Definitely. Perfect. Wonderful. You've got it. Okay. So you said that you now, you believe in that methodology, which is is frankly the best methodology because anytime we can bring the world into the classroom, it makes learning more meaningful. And so the students are more motivated. So let's go into why you went to China.
1: Okay. So at that time, I was in another inner city school, but not so low income, but all Asian based. And I was at that school for five years. And that's when I started to learn how you say Chinese names correctly. I had terrible problems with that because we don't hear the same tones that they hear in their language.
0: Okay, so this is really important. And forgive me for interrupting you, Raz, but I'm I'm not familiar with... With this phenomenon it never came up but there was a huge asian population in toronto could you explain yes, how sir. that came to be please
1: well when hong kong was given back to the chinese when it was decided that china was going to take back uh, hong kong the hong kong knees left hong kong in droves and where did they come they went to british colony countries and canada was a natural for them. So the Hong Kong came in droves. They brought their suitcases of money. It's just an idiom, but it means they bought up properties, they established lives here, because they were afraid that they were going to have to change their ideology. Because in Hong Kong, for a hundred years, they'd always been freedom of speech and and all the benefits of being a, a British colony or whatever i I don't know exact terminology but you get what i'm saying they were looking for insurance about if it was going to turn out bad for them they had a place to go they had a place to send their children okay
0: so and in the end they really can go back and forth from hong kong there really aren't the restrictions that everyone was afraid that they were going to implement but they they've now relocated and they're established in toronto is that right In Toronto
1: and everywhere across the country,
0: Uh, Vancouver
1: and Toronto are the major places for Asian immigrants. So we in Toronto, we have 6 million right now in the GTA, Greater Toronto Area, and about 1 million of them are Asian, mostly from China and Hong Kong, but Vietnamese, Japanese, Thai and so on
0: when we use the term in the state's inner city it usually means lower income families but in this case it means actually the opposite doesn't it uh,
1: yes we have 3 chinatowns and
0: two korean
1: towns and they are they are not inner city
0: they're not lower income So you began teaching in the inner city and what you really mean by that, it is the inner city, but you started teaching a largely Asian population. You had to start learning names, which names are fundamental. You and I both know this. The more we can use a name with a student, the more they feel seen and heard. And you had this challenge of trying to pronounce their names, not trying, you had to pronounce their names. Were they really cooperative and generous about helping you learn that pronunciation?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, definitely. But I never did get it. Uh, <laughs> trust me. Okay, it I didn't.
0: No, the sounds are <laughs> but, very specific. And and once you're once you become older, your ear actually cannot hear the differences. So it's it's very challenging. That's right. When I say
1: never, I mean, in that time, I never did hear the the differences. Of course, when I moved to China, I started to develop that skill. But that's, a, that's, later in our discussion. Okay. So uh, just carrying on there in that school for five years, Asian population, ESL, heavy on ESL education. I was not specifically trained in ESL teaching. I don't have an ESL certificate. I can say that honestly, but I've always focused at my, lear- my teaching attention on building from the ground up as far as
0: language goes. So you're a self-learner. You're an autodidactic. we can say, when it comes to learning how to present information in the classroom, right? Okay. Yes. Okay, that's an agreement. Yeah, I yeah. like it. Um, but there's one other thing, Roz, I'd you, I need to establish this as well. We're talking about British, well, s- families from a British colony, and you're talking about ESL. So we need to establish whether their home language is Chinese, or they came to school speaking English, or what you're saying is they did not come to school speaking English.
1: Ah, uh, no, they, most of them did not. Most of them had a little bit of English. Like, Two classes a week of English kind of thing for four or five years or how, whatever. Okay. So their
0: home language is Mandarin or different dialects? Mandarin
1: Mandarin. or Cantonese, both. But there was also Vietnamese. There was also Japanese, a big Vietnamese community, and now an even bigger Korean community in Toronto.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Now we have the
1: foundation. Let's keep going. Okay. After the last two years, I became... Not an assistant, but I had a bigger supportive role with the principal. And I started to help her with teacher evaluations. And I was good at that because I was also a half-time computer teacher to all the students in the school. So I, c- I got to know all the different classes and all the different methodologies that were going on in each teacher's class. So I, I was coming at it from both angles, but I was the expert in how to write the computerized report cards, for example. I had to teach the teachers that, but I was also teaching student all the classes, how to do Word, how to do Excel, how to make a PowerPoint, things like
0: that. Okay, so you were also involved in technology, which is very interesting, and I'm yeah. still dying to know how you ended up in China. Okay, that last year I was in
1: that (laughs) in that school, I was offered through a friend of a friend of a friend a job in Beijing, China. And through the summer months of maybe six and a half weeks, I decided to take the job. It was a one year contract. I was the curriculum coordinator and then the school principal within a month's time. I was the school principal, just because the principal left and I was the teacher. You
0: had all the tricks. You had all the tricks that you could just pull out and pull everything together, right? Yes and no, I did it. And I
1: stayed in China for 15 years because, well, first of all, I didn't like the job there, but I stayed in education the whole time I was there. So yeah, um, that school gave me a huge eye-opener about education in everywhere else but public school system. In that school, I didn't get it. It took me about two months to get it. That this school was not for education. This school was for making money for the owners. It was a private school
0: that you were given this contract into,
1: right? Yeah. I didn't work in a public school that was run by the government. I was most foreigners who were teachers would get jobs in the private schools.
0: Okay. So I'm just going to ask you if this is similar to my experience. I live in Spain. And when I moved to Spain, I got a job at a private American school And mostly these American schools are joined together by one common organization that supports them. In this case, it was hundred percent owned by the parents. I lasted five years there, which is four and a half years longer than I believed I could have. (laughs) Uh, The point is that I don't see that it was a beneficial element to have parents who are not educators run the school and make educational decisions. And I'm wondering if you had a similar experience. I had exactly the same experience,
1: but it was double because it was not only the parents who were dictating uh, the educational philosophy, but also the uneducationally experienced owners.
0: Okay. And there really was, it was a financial motivation. It wasn't education at all. They saw having a private school as a financial opportunity. Is that right? And it continues in China. It's a huge business in China because they've got 1.4 billion people. Okay. So how did you navigate that as an educator and someone dedicated to creating learning environment? It was really, really difficult, but for six years, I did it because I
1: love being in China. So in the beginning, my experience was really difficult. The owner expected the report cards to be shining, glowing evaluations of all the students, no matter their skill or ability. And that really, that shocked me. But we had to do it. We had to rewrite report cards.
0: Okay, now just so you know, Roz, that's the reason why I finally left this particular school because I was an English literature teacher, and I put my heart and soul into not only planning my lessons, but correcting the work that my students did. And when I saw one boy, fail seven classes, seven out of eight, and the board decided, the board, which was the parents, the board decided to pass him, I thought, There is no motivation for me to put my heart and soul into my work if it's not honored in any way. So how did you deal with that as the principal? How did you find a way to motivate the teachers? The teachers believe,
1: as I did, that it was wrong, but there was basically nothing we could do about it. We wanted to stay in China. We wanted to continue making a difference in the lives of children. And we just kept on keeping
0: on. So aside from the grades, which were not really reflective of the children's work, you decided that you were still being a positive influence on their learning. And so you found a way to justify and sort of balance your your presence in the school. Is that correct? Is that accurate? Absolutely, Donna. That's exactly correct. And
1: I, uh, right from the beginning, right from the get-go, I gave all kinds of classes To the teachers, professional development things, from how to do blends, to talking about bullying, to to doing cooking in the classroom, to in the kindergarten, using a number chart and fabric on the floor and having the students jumping from one number to another what number goes before 100 99 jump on it you know that kind of thing so I just kept on teaching the teachers even though the management was not in tune to us we just kept on doing it anyways
0: Were yeah. the majority of the teachers foreigners or Chinese citizens
1: Most of them were foreigners. Yeah. Okay. And I was in three different schools in Beijing, and then a different school, a kindergarten that I uh, opened up with the owners in another city called Qingdao. So in six years, yeah, same thing.
0: Okay. And were these teachers receptive to different professional methodologies that you brought in? Receptive 100% because I supported them in every way that I
1: could. Yes, I made the that that's a little bit harsh, but yes, we we had a budget for library books, we had a budget for colored paper and not just notebooks and pencils and erasers, you know, the, the things that in Toronto, we just take that for granted. You know, there's a big storeroom and you just take what you need, you know. But
0: in China, money was the... They wanted profit and they weren't interested in investing so much. And so you needed to insist on having su- supplies, school supplies to yes. at least be able to function as an educational institution, right? Yes, yes.
1: And the in the last three schools that I was in, yes, it worked because the boss was also in tune with my philosophy, although the owners were not but we worked around it. Yes.
0: Those things were really important. Okay. So it sounds as though you were right on top of the best educational practices. You were making sure the students were moving. you were making sure that there was the real world was brought into the classroom. It seems like you did a lot of research to bring appropriate professional development into the school so that your teachers got the vision that you were hoping would be proliferated throughout the classes. Is that right? Yes,
1: yes. And the teachers appreciated it, really. Not every teacher, of course. Uh, Not every teacher was singing to the same music.
0: Where did you do your research? How did you decide what educational practices you wanted your teachers to be trained in? Well, Howard Gartner's theory
1: of multiple intelligences is a big, big leader, in my opinion, in my educational philosophy. Yeah. But but even in those days, I could still get on the Internet and get uh, resources and information that I needed. But I took a lot of what I taught the teachers From what I was taught when I was teaching before I came to China. So I already had a lot of that philosophy already
0: up here, which was just putting it into practice. And it sounds like that's a part of your personality and a part of your personal philosophy about being a whole person and creating learning environments where it honors the whole child. Because if you're interested in Howard Gardner, then you respect and honor and know that it's important to celebrate all the different intelligences. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why the number mat on the floor, the
1: number chart in a mat on the floor and you jump to the numbers its body kinesthetic spatial recognition it's um math it's so many skills
0: okay so now i'm going to ask you about diversity what experience did you have in regards to diversity in toronto and in china and we're talking about all types of diversity not just language not just economic differences but physical differences as well and now we have oh they're labeled they're probably they've always existed but now we have so many labels what did you do facing diversity uh, talk about ADD. That was
1: really hard in a classroom with three ADD kids in a class of twenty-five grade threes in my uh, last school. That took its toll on me, but we managed through it. I didn't do anything much different. I just did a lot more of it. You know, a lot more behavior modification, a lot more
0: positive reinforcement, a lot more different words on how to give praise. Yeah. Okay, and praise is so important because you probably know as well as I do, that it's important to be specific when we're giving praise because general praise goes into this whole cloud in the mind and the children really don't know what we're talking about unless we are very specific. But I I also want to ask you, it's autism. Those are the other, the whole spectrum of autism. Do you have experience with that in the classroom?
1: Yes, in in my um, in my second school, the Australian International School, uh, we identified one grade two autistic boy, and we did everything we could to help that boy. I interviewed the parents, and they refused to accept our understanding that he was great and different, and he needed help. He needed a, a psychologist. Someone who could help him with autism. And we recommended, I recommended a person who could help them. They had a practice helping the, this kind of children. And in the end, the parents withdrew the child from our school because they were embarrassed.
0: You probably realize this, Ross but there's a whole syndrome with parents who refuse to accept because of who knows, peer pressure, parent-parental pressure, societal pressure. They refuse to accept the fact that, as you said, and I love how you just said it, they were they were great and different I have a sister who has an autistic child. He has Asperger's, what is now known as the higher range on the spectrum of autism. And because she was willing to accept it and her husband as well, they completely accepted the needs that their son had and they did everything they could to help him through his from three years old up and now he is a functioning adult. It doesn't mean the symptoms haven't gone away. It just means that in his case, he is productive, he lives alone and he's responsible and autonomous. Whereas yeah. some of their friends have children with the same, they had the same symptoms and they did nothing because they were terrified to admit that their children were different. And their children now as adults cannot live by themselves. And it's tragic. So what sounds like you were trying to do is help the parents be proactive. And unfortunately, they could not at that point accept the differences of their children.
1: No, no. And and it broke our hearts in the end, because in, well, I can't say exactly all over Asia, but I can definitely say in Southeast Asia, China, Korea, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, Japan, that area, face is everything. And face is what they project as a family, as a family group, as parents to the rest of the world. That's a lot of pressure on the children, is that right? It's terrible pressure. Terrible pressure. It's terrible pressure on the parents too. But it's um, it's part of the culture. That's something that I learned. You know, when you say, um, when I say, it changed China, changed my life. Living there for fifteen years. That's one of the things that I understand deeply about about Chinese culture and traditional philosophy.
0: Well, this is exactly what I was going to ask you next. What left such a strong imprint on your soul, having lived there for 15 years? It sounds like you went in as an incredibly generous educator and person. Did you become even more so, or you just became more knowledgeable about the culture?
1: Uh, I, I became an understanding and accepting person in a way that I deeper than when I left Canada. Yeah. So it it permeates so much of my life now and so much of how I behave and relate to people and so much of how I structure the courses that I have created because of the last 12 years of my work in China. So... Understanding the difficulties that teachers are experiencing in their job and why there's so much teacher burnout and teachers quitting the profession. And what I felt when I was, I I started after the school principalships I became a consultant and I consulted to educational schools, universities, after school program based learning environments. And I taught teachers and I gave seminars and workshops on how to uh, how a
0: good teacher can become a great teacher. That's for so your teacher trainer. That's what I do now. I do teacher training and it's incredibly fulfilling. Um, sometimes frustrating when you're giving your best advice and teachers smile and then go back to their old habits, right? Well, yes. Yes, that is a big problem because not only do
1: they go back to their old habits, but they also are stuck in a system where they have to. 50 or 60 students, grade two students in one class is irresponsible, in my opinion. But teachers have to deal with that. And how do they deal with it? They are given a textbook by the education department in the province of whatever in China. And they have to follow it. And it's boring. And it's deconstructive. It focuses on grammar and rote learning, and it doesn't give the students what they need so that they can learn.
0: And I can only imagine that it means the students have to be seated reading and doing exactly what the human body is not capable of doing sitting for long periods of time, right? Sitting for long periods of time, every minute, you know, sitting on their desk with their hands up, hands down. So what could you, what did you suggest to try to tweak the dynamic a little bit?
1: Well, I didn't go there with the students in rows and the numbers. I empathized with them, definitely. But I tried to port them to say, let's say there's five activities for the week in the English textbook in the grade eight class, for example, there's one that the teacher knows is boring, I say, why don't you secretly drop that one and bring in James Taylor's You've Got a Friend. Print out the lyrics, sing the song, sing it again, sing it again, focus on the vocabulary, give them some work for homework instead of that boring activity. And I say, you know, you're not bucking the system, I, I don't say it that way, but I that's what we know what that means. But you are doing something that you know is right for your students, even though you maybe it's the first time you're doing it. You're going to give it a try and see if it works. Get them all to stand up, clap to it, turn around, do a dance to it, It'll, like start to implement what we are talking about before. Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences, introduce music, introduce some body kinesthetic talk about you've got a friend spiritualism interpersonal relationships interpersonal
0: relationships all of that so it's a wealth of a wealth of opportunities just in a song is what you're saying what was your success rate in teachers applying this
1: Well, for 12 years, I always was brought back to one place for several years or to a university to teach the teachers who are, they call it normal university. That's where teachers learn to be teachers. So I did workshops all over. And because
0: I guess through word of mouth, the reputation started to evolve. When I say the success rate for the success for you and the fact that you're the word got around and they thought found you were a very proficient professional trainer, what about the change in the classroom? Were you able to monitor any changes? left so
1: i couldn't effect that because of the language barrier talk about language barrier i didn't have to learn chinese for six years because i had my little assistant beside me in each school translating for me not the way i said it but okay they still did the job and then when i left those schools i needed to learn it i took classes I studied grammar. I started to hear the language better, but I was unsuccessful. What only taught me to speak the Chinese that I speak now, which is about thirty percent. Okay, it's pretty good considering.
0: Is just being there.
1: I call it osmosis.
0: Okay, and it's also part of the culture because what I hear you're saying, and I'm just going to go back a little bit to what the impact was on your your being on your soul. I what I'm hearing is the impact was acceptance was acceptance of cultural differences, was acceptance of people's perspectives of teaching. And after a certain amount of time, you just have to say, I'm either going to be go to bed frustrated every night, or I'm going to learn that everyone has a different path and different rhythm. And it sounds like that's what you were doing.
1: I was, I was, and you're absolutely right. And thanks for putting it the way I was unable to phrase it. (laughs) (laughs) No, but yes, Yes, it's, it's correct. Yes, Donna. Yeah. So, and I also, sorry, I also uh, felt that in my small way, this Jewish Chinese grandmother from Canada was making a difference in somebody's life by giving back all of this that's inside here and inside here to them. And I know I did make a difference. I don't have the facts of how,
0: but for me, it's okay. I love it. And just so you know, I was also brought up Jewish. I am Jewish. And what I found is the longer I live abroad, I'm from New York. My parents were big proponents on traveling. All of my family, we've lived in different countries throughout our lives. I'm the only one that has been away so long and the longer i'm away from the state the more accepting i become and i the more i say that i am jewish to the core but i'm also a citizen of the world I'm a, I'm a soul of the universe and that means complete acceptance i'm not saying it works all the time but my goodness it's just a relief to say everyone is beautiful in their own way we just have to find that beauty many times right but we
1: translate it into our current uh relationships in a in a way that we didn't when we were living in our home country that's at least how i feel
0: can you explain that in another way i'd love to understand that a little more
1: i can befriend a person who doesn't have the political i don't want to talk politics ideology don't worry the same political ideology Uh, yeah We are totally opposed. He's here, I'm there. And we're still carrying on conversations, not arguments and not focused on politics, but understanding he's there and I'm there and I can still accept it as opposed to arguing as I might have done 20 years ago because of my understanding that the world is a big place and everybody's in it with a different idea and comes from a different
0: place. You know that? So this is a perfect transition into what it sounds like you're doing now, this empowerment of students, of teachers. Can you broaden this whole idea and explain to us what your work is right now? Well, the 12 years or actually
1: the 15 years of work teaching teachers has caused me to accumulate a lot of different PowerPoints and presentations and ideas of how to help teachers. So they were sitting in my computer gathering dust. What am I going to do with them? I would love to give that knowledge to the world. And now that there's such a huge proliferation and a changing mindset about how people can learn or improve or get professional development, that's what I'm doing with my courses. I'm taking something that I did in the past and tweaking it and making it today's information. So those are the things that I'm doing, and that's how I'm doing it in my courses for teacher
0: professional development. Are you working in university or do you have your own academy? What's the format, the venue? Online courses. Okay, so we're going to make sure that people can find you. We're going to add, include a link to make sure that people can find you because what I just am so impressed by is there's a whole philosophy behind your work. Most of the people I meet in the classroom today are so trained in content that they have not been given the chance to think of a philosophy behind their practices. And it sounds like either you were just lucky enough or it's so it was just a part of your personality, your being to act through philosophy, It's the best interest of your students. Is that does, how does that resonate when I say that? That, that resonates very well. Yes, that's perfect
1: explanation. I do, I can think back uh, when my daughter was two years old and my ex-husband and I were having discussions about shouting no or teaching her. And I was always on the teaching her side of it. And he was always on the no, no, no side of it. That's an overgeneralization, but you get the idea. And it just has always, It's. I guess it's always been there. Era, very, I, I guess, you know, Canadians, kind.
0: Maybe let's go back to that. <laughs> it's possible because it's possible this is part of the society. But your husband, is he Canadian as well? Yes. Okay, but he was a no. If it weren't for you, you would have sort of a no home. And I call it a no classroom where teachers ask students to raise their hand. And if they don't give, and I'm doing air quotes, the correct answer, they say no, 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 no until they find the student that has the answer they want. It doesn't mean that it's the all-encompassing correct answer. It's the one that they wanted.
1: Yes, uh, higher higher levels of thinking, you know, not just repeating, not just um, regurgitating, rote learning, but higher levels of thinking that goes beyond that to analysis, evaluation, up to creating things. All right,
0: I'm going to go back to the time when you were a principal of a school. What do you find, the best practices say, and, and I, I mentioned that I work with whole schools now and the, be, the schools that have the most advances, the most positive advances is where the principal is a absolute strongly strong proponent of the coordinators and of the teachers. The principal is a leader who helps create other leaders. And this trickles down to the students where they are empowered. So I'm wondering what you could tell to teachers and other principals and parents what to look for in quality of a principal who has best practices.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Hiring hiring the right kind of teacher who has the same philosophy as your, you have just expressed. And that's that's the best thing that you can do for the school. And if you don't have them if you're if you are um, in you have inherited the teachers, you do the best you can to to motivate
0: and work your way in maybe from the back door instead of from the front door. Would I be correct in saying that you treated teachers that you had inherited because at in the beginning you inherited all of them probably with the same sort of positive reinforcement you use with your students and in other words beginning with compliments and then just you know inserting different suggestions that they could try to change the dynamic okay in in one of my uh courses i talk about the kodak
1: moment in english we know that but in asia most of them are too young to know what the kodak moment means But yes, giving praise, focusing on you did that graph so fantastically, or that's the kind of thing. Take the Kodak moment and convert it into words.
0: But what you're saying also is it's not just praise. You're being specific about the praise. I want to go back to that. What exactly? What are your goals now for the you? Are your workshops are geared towards teachers? Is that correct?
1: Yes, my my courses are strictly geared to teachers.
0: Yes. What is your overriding goal in these workshops?
1: To convert as many teachers as I can in this kind of a way or this kind of a way. Just a little, a trickle from me and a trickle to today and a trickle tomorrow, and maybe it works. I'll be going to probably be going to China in June, in ju- sorry, in July for a, a camp at a school where there are going to be two parts to it. There's going to be a small group of students, uh, and I'll be the classroom teacher. But I will also, be demonstrating to the teachers that will be observing the best practices of good English teaching.
0: All right, so I don't want you to give away too much information, because I would love people to find you, because it sounds like there's so much that they will learn from you, and you're going to pull out the best from their soul, not just from their cognitive skills. Could you give us one or two examples of the best practices that you you work on in the workshops?
1: Well, as I gave you before, music has to be a strong component. Not strong in every day, but it has to get the teachers, it has to resonate with the teachers, that this... This is a valuable
0: activity. That would be one thing that I do regularly. And let me just make a um, comment there because music is so much more important than we might think it is. We learn through rhythm. We learn from the time we are in our mommy's tummies, rhythm, language through rhythm. And so if we use music in the classroom from the youngest ages to the oldest learners, we are actually helping their cognitive functions. And you probably know that intuitively. I do. And I understand that in
1: kindergarten, how do they learn English as a second language? They learn it through nursery rhymes and all kinds of songs that the wheels on the bus, um, twinkle, twinkle, little star. And it goes on, it goes into nursery rhymes and, and it goes on to fairy tales and even with adults. The example that I gave before about James Taylor's song, You've Got a Friend, it goes to adults. If a teacher has got a class with adults or high school students, it's still appropriate. Of course, it's not appropriate for the kindergarten, but you, you get the idea.
0: The other practice you're probably thinking of is movement, because you have said a few times that you believe in movement. And again, we learn through movement. The Industrial Revolution made us sit in seats so we'd be perfect factory workers, but it goes against human nature. And what you've been talking about is using movement in the learning environment, right? Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. Okay, so Raz, this has absolutely flown by. I still have a couple of more questions for you. Can you tell us you were in China for 15 years and you obviously had some challenging experiences, but you had some incredibly beautiful experiences or you wouldn't have stayed that long. Can you tell us something about your favorite parts of the culture, a favorite experience that you had? I loved all
1: of the food. Let me just show you. I wrote two cookbooks, Chinese cookbooks, when I was in China.
0: Granny Rose's Chinese Comfort Food. We're going to have to put that down too. See, Can it be found on Amazon? Yes. Excellent. Okay, we're gonna include that link. What's the other one? Ross Weitzman, World of Chinese Comfort Food. This is the the sister.
1: This is the Chinese version. That's the English version. I also have a French version. And then when I moved from Beijing, where the food was different, to Yunnan Province in the south west they have a different cultural food dynamic
0: it's very different okay and raz is holding up Roz weitzman world of Yunnan cuisine we can also find it on amazon i just want to put in a small comment there as comfort food for me is just popcorn all i need is popcorn and i'm good to go but i would love to look at your cookbook it's not vegetarian by any chance is it i could never be a vegetarian i'm vegan but i can imagine in china that would be challenging it's very difficult. I had
1: some friends who were vegetarians, and yeah, it was hard. I don't know if he's vegan now, but yeah, it, it's it's difficult because they use meat and everything. Yeah. yeah,
0: no, I mean I'm in Spain, ham is and everything, so they don't even consider yeah. it meat. They give it to me and say, but it's ham, and I say, yes, yeah. that used to be an animal. But in any case, so the food culture, food culture is amazing, and if you're going to come to
1: China you've got to have an open mind. And we're not talking about eating dog or cat. I never ever saw it. And I'm really resentful of all those YouTube videos that show that because in my experience, I had so many Chinese friends and none of them ever wanted to touch that kind of animal. Anyways, let's move on.
0: Another beautiful part of the culture that really still sits in your
1: soul. The architecture of not only the Great Wall, which is an architectural marvel, but also the temples that are still, that weren't destroyed during the Cultural Revolution. But even the temples that are still around are ancient buildings with structure that is so beautiful. And their gardens with their stones. I have a little story. I was uh, one of my family members. They were visiting Beijing and I took them to Shanghai and we went to a garden and there was this rock in the middle of the garden. And in China, you adore rocks. And I said, oh, it's just so amazing. It just fits in so perfectly with
0: all the flowers.
1: And the person that I was with, he said, it's a rock. (laughs)
0: does not have that chinese artistic sensibility obviously right it's a different culture it's so
1: diametrically different and that's why one of my courses is about cultural diversity and how to teach it and it's a common topic
0: to talk about in theory it's difficult to teach it and what you're saying is there's such a there's such a large population of Asians in Canada now with the teachers you're working with. It is something they really need to recognize and celebrate in their yeah. classrooms. You know? Yes, definitely.
1: It's not just about the food and it's not just about the architecture. It's about how Westerners do it this way and our foreigners do it this
0: way and Asians do it that way. I usually end with a what-if question, and you've given me so many what-if dynamics. I'm not sure what I could give you that you haven't talked about, but what if you had a school of your own again now in Toronto, and you had a huge, diverse population, What would you ideally promote as a best practice? I'm not talking about content. I think I'm talking about acceptance. How would you be able to promote acceptance between the students, between the teachers and the students, between the teachers and the parents? What would your big technique be to foster more acceptance? And create a learning environment that's very, very positive.
1: It's a very good point. I don't think I have the energy right now <laughs> to have a school. However, I do believe in cultural diversity because it's, it's our cornerstone. I mean, my great-grandparents on one side and grandparent on the other side came from Eastern Europe. And so did my neighbors, come from somewhere else, heritage wise. So yes, promoting cultural diversity in a multicultural society is extremely important. And in China, it's different because it's, homo- it's a homogenous society. So they don't have to talk about it. They never have to think about it. They are told that this side is not good and their side is great. So it's something that they have to understand intuitively by themselves. And how do we teach the students that? For me as an educator, I give them lots of ideas, like how to write an instructions to write a how-to about how to make a tuna sandwich, for example, and then make it and draw a picture of it and eat it and taste it and And experience the whole situation as just one idea of cultural diversity. But
0: again, what you're (laughs) doing is bringing the real world into the classroom. You're not being theoretical about it. Underlying, there's a theory. But what you're saying is bring the real world into the classroom and understand that some people love tuna sandwiches and other people have never seen it. What is the difference? Right. One day bringing in a parent who can talk about the things from their culture. What I would love to do is take this up again in the future you have just i told you you have so much to talk about i told you this that you have this wealth of knowledge that really needs to be shared so we'd love to continue this again in the future what do you- you think i would be delighted
1: you're wonderful to talk to you hone in on my vague ideas and you bring them to life and let's do it again
0: why not i would love it sounds wonderful sounds wonderful and really i'm gonna we need to find out where people can reach you because if it's an online course then anyone in the world can take this course so you'll send okay. me that link please i will okay i will, will my pleasure perfect such a wide berth of topics and it doesn't feel that we even got below the surface of Raz's experiences. Please find links to contact her below and you can find chats with other phenomenal educators like Raz at Doodles with Donna. Find the links below as well for activities that promote positive reinforcement among many other activities at scaffoldingmagic.com. In the meantime have fun in your classes and at home and see you soon for more.